A note that this episode was recorded and produced before the June 30th news broke of the United States Coast Guard's failure to pursue criminal investigations of a large number of sexual assaults of former students at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. You can read about that in a link found in the show notes. We have decided to leave the interview with our guest Sonar Kurt as is. Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. Sonar Kurt is an investigative reporter for The War Horse, a nonprofit newsroom covering the military and veterans. She's based in California and has been a journalist since 2015, a lecturer at Berkeley since 2018, where she got one of two master's degrees, the other being from Georgetown. Prior to that, she served in the United States Coast Guard for five years, so she has a military perspective. Hi, Sonar. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. So this one will be unique. What's your journalism origin story? You know, I don't know that any journalist has a, a typical journalism origin story, but I think mine's mine's pretty atypical. I, I mean, I enjoyed writing growing up, but I never, never considered a career in journalism. It never crossed my mind. I thought I would maybe go into international development. I wasn't sure, but coming out of high school, I knew that I wanted to serve in the military and specifically go to a service academy. My dad had been a Navy pilot before I was born. We grew up sort of sailing in the Chesapeake Bay near the Naval Academy. And I just thought that going to a military academy where I was sort of challenged in unique ways and and serving afterwards would be an interesting experience. I didn't necessarily want to make the military a career, but I knew I wanted to do that. And I didn't really know what I was going to do after that. So I went to the Coast Guard Academy where it's it's a, a pretty engineering heavy school. I majored in in government, which is one of two non, or at the time was one of two non-engineering majors, basically the only major in, in the humanities. But even with that, it was a Bachelor of Science. I still had to take electrical engineering and calculus and physics and statics and engineering design, as well as sort of seamanship, navigation, nautical science. I tried to get as much writing done as I could there. I co-founded the Cadet Creative Writing Journal, but you know there really was no student paper. There was nothing like that. I think there had been briefly a student paper the year before I got there, or maybe my freshman year, but you know the Military service academies are a little on the authoritarian side. And so I think there was an op-ed published that they didn't like and the newspaper didn't last very long. <laughs> so I didn't really have any experience, you know, any exposure to journalism. I mean, you know, I, I read the paper. I was an informed consumer of news, I guess, but I never thought about it as a career. And towards the end of my Coast Guard career, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I went to Georgetown to get a master's in democracy and governance studies. So it's sort of a niche field kind of within international development that looks at how countries sort of transition back and forth between being democracies and and being authoritarian governments. And, you know, I thought maybe I, like I said, I would do international development work, or really at that point, I was thinking I would kind of continue on to a PhD. But through literally that program, I came to realize just what a foundational pillar of democracy, good, nuanced, and sometimes combative journalism can be. And, you know, 
I obviously I went to this this program. I was interested in the idea of democracy. I was interested in what makes democracies work. And I started taking a couple of classes sort of outside that program. I took one with Ryan Lizza, who was at the New Yorker at the time, and realized because, you know, about journalism and journalism's role in, in the United States and democracies broadly. And so it was really sort of an academic interest at first. And then at some point I realized this is an academic, I, I don't want to go write academic papers that few people will read about journalism. I'd like to actually be a journalist. And, you know, it was honestly, it took me a long time to, to come around to the idea because I think for a very long time, I'd thought that journalists were people who wrote about people who did things. And I really wanted to be a person who did things. I remember as a public affairs officer in the Coast Guard, interacting with journalists and wondering why anyone would do this. It just didn't seem interesting to me at all. But, you know, I, I came to realize that it's just, you know, a really critical, important part of a democracy. I didn't want to be sitting at a desk all day. I liked the idea of going out and talking to people, experiencing things, combining that with my interest in writing. And then it was really investigative journalism and accountability journalism that, that piqued my interest. You know, I think that, I mean, I've come around to the idea that also, you know, I don't, I don't believe anymore that journalists just write about people who do things and are not people who do things. But I think particularly, you know, when you're filing public records requests, when you're doing a data analysis, when you're kind of pulling strands together, it, it really is allowing you to sort of do the digging and put the pieces together. And that really appealed to me. So I, I you know, was out of the Coast Guard at that point. I finished up at Georgetown. I was fortunate in that I had the GI Bill from my time in the service which let me basically turn around and go back to school for a master's at Berkeley for journalism. And yeah, that's sort of how I, how I became a journalist. It was not my, not my first choice. Although when I was younger, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a detective. So I feel like maybe there's some good <laughs> there. Me too. So I'm, <laughs> I'm with you there. I'm curious, is there anything in your family or heritage that lent itself to telling stories or doing investigative work? Yeah, I think maybe not telling stories so much, but the investigative side of things, I, my mom and I joke that there's like an investigative gene in our family. My, my aunt, who was given up for adoption when she was little, my mom didn't know she had a sister, eventually became a private eye, tracked down her own family, which is why we, we know my aunt now. So she was a private eye. My mom considered becoming a private eye. She does a lot of genealogical research for all sorts of people, helps out lawyers. And, and so there's definitely this, I feel like, family tradition of, of digging and making connections. And your, your dad wrote a book. My dad did write a book recently. He was an architect. He wrote a little blurb for his employees every Monday morning for probably 20 years. And, and he recently compiled them into a book. So he told me he, he beat me to to the first family books. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, when, when's your, when's your book coming? Yeah, right. Exactly. He keeps asking me the same thing. <laughs> nice. So I want to back up slightly. I want to back up to the Coast Guard Academy because you've written about how it's shaped you as a person, but there was a line in one of your pieces and there's two that I've seen. It was so hard and fast and dizzying that it felt like a universe ever outward expanding and it suddenly folded in on itself. 
What was the overall experience like at the Coast Guard Academy? It's a hard question to answer. I mean, it's a it's a tough place to go to school. It's very isolating. You're cut off, especially your freshman year, from a lot of the outside world. And you're you're really challenged sort of academically, physically, militarily, which is what I was looking for. But the reality of sort of being in the throes of this, this world that, you know, you referenced that quote that sort of felt very small and very myopic at the academy specifically was, was really diff- difficult, I thought. But at the same time, you know, some of my, my very best friends are from the Coast Guard Academy, you know, you're not literally in the trenches, but, but basically together. And I think that it absolutely like gave me a platform to do what I wanted down the line, you know, like it's, it's, it kind of puts you through the ringer. And I think it prepares you for all sorts of challenges that, that come at you later in, whether in the military afterwards or, you know, in civilian life. But it was, it was a massive shift going from kind of high school, exploring all my interests, growing, and then sort of, you know, the goal is to kind of break you down and and build you up in this mold of, I guess, an officer. And it definitely breaks you down and, and, Then you have, you got to build yourself up. Yeah. Yeah, Um, And one thing that you wrote about in, in some of these personal experience pieces that like you have this inside perspective now that 15 years later is particularly interesting in one, one aspect of that was the LGBTQ being LGBTQ at a military academy and the difficulties of that. Can you speak to what, what you wrote about there? Yeah. I mean, I served in the military during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And it was, you know, I was something I knew going in, absolutely. And something that I sort of, you know, just dated men and women. And so it wasn't, you know, like a a fully closed off door, I guess. But it was something I knew that it would be sort of closing off a part of myself or keeping it secret. And I think that, you know, having to, in an environment where you're supposed to be really pushing yourself and, and forcing yourself to be the best, to have to hide something sort of, integral to who you are, I think is incredibly challenging. And, you know, I think shaped not just my, some of my reporting interests, which, which we can talk about, about the experiences of, of, you know, people who we don't think are sort of the prototypical military person or, or, or veteran, but also, you know, the stock we put in leadership to choose policies that are, that are the best for the people who it serves or is responsible to. So I will say, you know, it was not, it, it wasn't easy. And I think the military has done absolutely the right thing, moving in, in the right direction, ending that policy, ending the ban more recently on, on transgender members serving openly. But it's definitely a place where my personal experience, you know, shaped my experiences then and and sort of who my reporting now. How has, how did being in the academy and then in the, at the academy and then in the Coast Guard, how did that prepare you for being a military reporter? I, my last tour in the Coast Guard was at Coast Guard headquarters, where I sort of worked at, worked at the intersection of budget and human resources, which was not the most exciting tour, although I worked with a lot of really great people. But being sort of in the belly of government, a big bureaucratic institution, um, at the time I did not enjoy, but it has 100% shaped my my reporting now and my reporting interest and interest in 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 institutions and in bureaucratic institutions and in bureaucratic inertia in the way that you know bureaucracies can can 
wield and power and sort of hide the mechanisms of, of, of that power. So that, you know, that's not the sexiest answer that it was really being part of the, my tour in the bureaucracy that, that shaped my reporting, but it definitely informed my view of how government operates and, and shaped a lot of the interests I have now. I will say I, I did not think I would become a military reporter when I switched to journalism. In fact, I, I actively didn't want to. I thought this was something that I did. It's in the past. I experienced it like on to new things. And I had started freelancing a bit for the Warhorse. Initially, with the Warhorse publishes, in addition to our, our sort of journalism side, we also publish first person essays by service members, veterans, anyone who's sort of touched by the military. And so I had started writing for them with a personal essay and then was doing some journalism freelance for them, but still was sort of like, this is, I don't think this is what I want to be doing. You know, I want to, I want to be exploring new things. But the more I got involved in it and the more I the more I started digging, the more I realized that this is a fascinating and underreported topic. I mean, the Department of De Defense budget is by far the biggest line item in the US budget. You know, we spend more money on that than we do several of the the next sort of cabinet level agent, you know, departments combined. And the actions of the military, you know, I had, I knew that they had, I saw how they affected people as a, as a veteran, you know, whether we were in the military or outside of the military, but for most Americans whose, you know, taxpayer dollars are going towards funding this behemoth, the military feels very disconnected or irrelevant in their lives. And I think the thing that attracted to me to the war horse and to military reporting is not sort of, you know, we don't do a lot of the, the guns and gear and inside baseball of, of what some military reporting can be but trying to show that this massive sort of black box of a bureaucracy at the heart of our democracy affects the lives of everyone, right? Like when I learned for a piece I did early on that the US does not count military emissions towards its climate or its carbon emissions that it reports to the UN, it blew my mind. The, the US military doesn't track its own carbon emissions, right? And that is something that affects everyone in this country and everyone on the planet. And I think drawing those lines is what attracted me to, to being a military reporter. But but my time, you know, in the in the military obviously set me up for this and, and has helped me, but but initially it made me think I didn't want to do this. So you're talking about essentially taking taking stories and turning them from just names on a page or statistics on a page into giving a humanity to it. And I want to talk about some of the stories that you've written. And I'll, I will go back to the LGBTQ in the military, where you did a piece talking with service members, and you really had a broad swath of people across the country about a variety of issues that come up in states that are proposing anti-LGBTQ legislation where these people are stationed. One of the quotes, really the, the one that stood out the most from that story, you don't want to be assigned to a location that is hostile to your existence. Can you tell us about that story and the reporting that went into it? Yeah, definitely. And I think this gets at the heart of why I like being a military reporter in that, you know, in a, in a, in a time that's so polarized, the military is one of, if you're in the military or you're a military family, it's one of the few sort of institutions that has to take the country as a whole. You can't sort of retreat to your own geographic or ideological bubble, right? Because you have to go where the military sends you. And so 
you know, reading about this, this rash of legislation that has really uh, popped up just in the last five years, sort of targeting the rights of, of LGBTQ people in, in certain states. A lot of those states, I realized, are states that have big military presences. So Texas, Florida, these are states where if you are in the military, and particularly if you're making the military a career, it's very hard to avoid being stationed there. Army Sergeant's Major Academy is in Texas. If you are want to be a, a medical personnel in any service, you kind of have to go through Texas. If you want to be a Navy pilot, Marine Corps pilot, Coast Guard pilot, you have to go through Florida. And so I just started wondering, you know, taking these big conversations we're having in the in the country at large and thinking, how does this apply to people who who have to go to these states, right? And obviously the military is not the only group of people that have to 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 travel to states where they don't might not necessarily choose choose to live, but they're it's sort of a unique experience for them. And so I started reaching out or you know trying to find both military service members who were gay or transgender, as well as military service members who had particularly children who were LGBTQ, because a lot of these laws target children and children's access to healthcare and children's ability to, you know, participate in sports, use the bathroom of their choice. In some cases, like in Florida, like, you know, potentially talk about their families or who they are in school. And what I found was honestly pretty scary. I mean, military members and military families who are in this situation feel incredibly trapped. Like, like you said, this quote about, you don't want to be signed to a, a place that's hostile to your existence. One trans woman I talked to who was in the army, she had, she lived off base in Missouri and she'd woken up to bullet holes in her car. And she said the security briefing she got sort of the informal security briefing by, by people when she got to the, to Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri was worse than the security briefing she got when she went to Afghanistan saying like, you know, this place is safe for you to go. This is not safe for you to go. Don't go to this part of town. Don't, you know. And so I think that people who want to serve, who want to make the military a career are really weighing like very real costs of should I, how do I protect myself? How do I protect, protect my family? And how do I do that while continuing to serve? And people, it's affecting people's decision to stay in the military. It's affecting people's decision to suggest to their children that they go in the military. So it was just a, you know, it's an angle I hadn't really seen covered elsewhere. It's one that it occurs to me that in a couple of months, you might need to do a follow-up and a couple of months from then you might need to do another one. We're working on a follow-up right now. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. And another piece, again, where instead of just taking statistics and laying them out there, putting names on a page, you did a story on a military hazard burn pits and their impact on military post 9-11. This is something that in like Vietnam War, we know about things of this nature, but in more modern times, what did, what did you report on and what was the reporting like on this one? Yeah. So this was really building on work that my editor, Kelly Kennedy had done back when she was a reporter at Military Times. She sort of broke the story that the military in Afghanistan and Iraq was was basically using these things thing called burn pits, which are these massive open air trash heaps of everything from medical waste to unexploded ordinances to, to paint to chemicals, and basically throwing it all in a massive pit, burning it to get rid of trash. And this was right next to 
troops living in sleeping quarters and um, the military had received, you know, had sort of had it guidance from its own doctors that this was not a great thing to be doing, but was sort of continuing to do it. And so she broke this story. And since then, it's sort of been an ongoing topic of investigation. It took 14 years, but just this last year, the Department of Veterans Affairs basically, or Congress passed a law, basically allowing people who were exposed to these toxins, to these burn pits, to get more benefits. Basically, if you have certain cancers, if you have certain respiratory conditions, now the Veterans Veterans Affairs will, and you served in one of these places, will automatically assume sort of that you, that it was caused by that, as opposed to sort of having to do this massive hurdle of trying to prove, you know, 15 years later that your illness was caused by this. So, so I wrote about, you know, that the passage of that act, but also sort of the, the military's long legacy of poisoning people. You know, like you said, Agent Orange after Vietnam was also a massive uphill struggle to, to get the military and VA to recognize that people were harmed by the chemicals it used and that they deserve benefits. And then to see that happen again with VA. But you know, one of my pieces looked back sort of the history even before that. During World War II, the military tested mustard gas on its own soldiers, including specifically Japanese American soldiers, basically pressuring them to ostensibly, you know, do their patriotic duty and be exposed to mustard gas so it could see specifically what it did to Japanese people. And then again, denying benefits. You know, atomic veterans where they did atomic testing, trying to get benefits there. More recently, contamination in the water in Camp Lejeune, military families exposed to, to toxins there. And then sort of looking forward, this is this is a pattern that the military uses toxins. It often knows it's using toxins. And then the people who are exposed to that on the other end aren't given the benefits. So, you know, um, one thing we're like seeing right now is PFAS, these perfluorinated compounds that were in military firefighting foam for years after the military knew that they caused cancers. When I was in the Coast Guard on a, on a polar icebreaker, when we crossed the Arctic Circle, they do sort of what's called a line crossing ceremony, and they sprayed us down with, with this cancer-causing firefighting foam, and we, we played around in it. So, you know, it's, it's personal, Yikes. as well as, you know, in, in Hawaii, toxins in the water supply there from, from the Navy. And so it's kind of this constant showing that there's a pattern here. It's not just a one-off as well as putting a human, a human voice and a human face to that. So finding people who are affected by this and, and what it's like. It occurs to me that John Stewart is often the face of stories like this. And John Stewart brings the headlines to this. But what the war horse does is it brings the detail and the, the specifics and the humanity and am I am I right in kind of establishing what the warhorse does as, as its kind of principal goals? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we're trying to do, and 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 also and just make the connection that you know if you care about human beings, you should care about this. So I found a piece that you wrote about the reporter source relationship in 2018 called "The Unspoken Obligation." Among other things, it asks questions and asks, and focuses on how journalists may not realize the consequences of their actions to their sources. I'm curious for you as a reporter, how do you make your sources feel comfortable and how do you handle that relationship 
with the knowledge of what you have previously studied and written about in this area? Yeah, it's something I think about all the time, I think. And I think that that, that the conversation about what journalists owe sources has become sort of much more part of the, you know, the conversation broadly in journalism, particularly with younger journalists. And this idea that, you know, we don't want to be extractive. But in 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 my work now, one thing I think that's interesting that I that I try to walk the line is, and I get I get a lot of stories sort of come in over the transom of of you know people in the military or veterans who feel something is wrong or that they've been wronged or you know that something needs to be exposed and they're reaching out to the warhorse to help them expose it, which you know in a lot of ways is is a reporter's dream. And I think goes to show that the military is under undercovered, given how many people are, are reaching out. And, you know, a lot of times people are, are incredibly eager to talk. And which, which again is great, but I'm always sort of wondering, you know, when people are, you know, feel wronged and are whistleblowers, I think that's incredible and people can make their own decisions, but I want to make sure that people are aware, you know, people who haven't necessarily worked with the press yet or worked with a reporter think through, it's not my job to tell them, but you know what to do or not, but think through ahead of time, the consequences that putting this out there could have on their career, on themselves, on their families. Because I think sometimes, you know, people are caught up in the moment and, and might not think about ramifications down the line of having their name sort of out in the public record in, in ways that, that will affect them more than will affect me. So, you know, rather than sort of coaxing people to talk, which I often have to do, but in this job, I'm, I'm doing a lot of conversations about like, have you thought through how comfortable you are? What, you know, if. And what's going to happen to you on social media and that sort of thing. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Especially, you know, in the military, which or the military community, which is not a behemoth in any way. It's incredibly diverse, but sometimes sort of can can come off as a behemoth. And if you you go counter to it, it can it can be not pretty on social media. What is the process of writing like for you? I think I'm a maybe in the minority of of reporters who really likes writing and likes the writing process. I I sort of like to hole up and and <laughs> you know, write. But yeah, I, my editor is always pushing, like starting writing as early as possible. So I'm, I'm getting in the habit of doing that, but I'm definitely like a sort of word vomit person, just vomit out everything onto the page as fast as possible. I often like write myself big notes, like I will fact check, or, you know, I will edit this later. And, you know, just to be like, turn your, your editor brain off, just get, you know, everything out on the page. And then I go back sort of over and over and sort of sharpen and, and edit and, and, you know, double check everything. But, but, but I, I really like the writing part of the process. And do the ideas, you kind of alluded to this before, that in a lot of cases, the ideas come to you or are you, how do you come up with other things? Yeah, it's both. Definitely, we, we do get a lot of people reaching out, which is awesome. But also a lot of it is thinking about what's going on in the broader national conversation and how that how that, you know, intersects with the military, whether it's, you know, these anti-LGBT laws or climate change or, you know, election denialism or whatever it is. 
So I'm constantly just sort of looking at what people are talking about and saying, where's where's the military angle of that? How can we how can we pull the military or veterans in? And what's the hardest part of the job? I think the hardest part of the job, honestly, it goes to this this idea that a lot of people reach out. I think you know a lot of veterans feel very alone and feel you know, like they stood up and they served their country and they sort of been forgotten about afterwards. And, you know, we can't do every story that that people reach out to with us with. Some of them, you know, aren't stories. And I find it very painful to have to sort of talk to people who who feel desperate and are so thankful, you know, to get an email back to, to, to be heard, to have their story heard, to say, we're not going to be able to to do a story about this. That's sort of the emotional side of it, but I find that difficult. Yeah, that's that's the human aspect again. So I do want to touch on one piece that I found. This is from your pre-days at Warhorse. I was I was looking and I was like, boy, she's written on so many serious, hard topics. It's got to be very taxing. And I found one that was lighter. This goes back to your days at the I think freelancing where you wrote a piece for the New York times called Isle of dogs. And I was just hoping that you could recount that for us because I found it amusing. <laughs> yeah, this was a, a totally random assignment. I had speaking of serious topics. I had been, I had been helping the New York times with its coverage of sort of some of the clashes between the far right and Antifa that were happening in Berkeley back in, in 2018, 2019. And then out of the blue, they were sort of like, uh, also, would you like to go to this premiere of, the Wes Anderson movie, Isle of Dogs in San Francisco, it's a showing for dogs and cover it for us. And I was like, you're going to pay me to go watch a movie with a bunch of dogs? Like, absolutely. So it was totally out of left field, both from them and from my, from, you know, what I'd been reporting on. But it was, uh, it was great. It was this, uh, the Roxy Theater in San Francisco, it's this old theater and they'd, you know, opened it up to, to, to dogs, obviously with their owners. And I went and I interviewed a bunch of owners about their dogs. And then we all watched the movie together. And it was funny. I mean, it got, it was like on the New York times, most popular list. It was, and, and I had been like, this is fun, but like a little ridiculous, but then the comments on the story were like, thank you so much for, you know, New York times for, for adding humor to my day or like things have been so tough. This is such a nice break. And I was like, oh, wow, this is actually, this is kind of a public service journalism in, in that, like, People want to just chill out and laugh for a minute. And so it's kind of that. It is. And the other thing was that you took it very seriously. Like you had you had every dog identified in the different seats. You knew where every dog was. It was very it was very strongly reported. And I I enjoyed it. It'll be in the, the show notes. Okay, a couple of more serious questions to wrap up. We have been asking journalists this throughout. How do you manage your mental health as a journalist? Oh yeah, such an important question. And my my partner is a journalist as well. She reports on climate change and labor. So our household is grim a lot of the time. So we have like an official cutoff in our house when we stop talking about work. But I'm really, you know, maybe this goes back to my military days, but I'm I'm really big on segmenting my time. Like I I try to work very, I mean, obviously as a journalist, this doesn't always work, but very normal hours. And after work, I don't have my email on my phone. I don't have Slack on my phone. I have a separate computer for work and non-work like Netflix or whatever. And I really try not to think about the things I'm, obviously I do, but I I really try not to, I I try to, you know, I go for a run, I get outside, I hike, and I I try to like almost do a physical transition to sort of the the non-work part of my day. And I think that helps. 
did I read right that you were an ultra marathoner? Yes, I've done a couple ultra marathons. Wow. Yeah. Uh, all right, that's that's <laughs> how long is that? The longest I've done is a, a couple fifty milers. Whoa. Okay. Wow. How has being a journalist shaped how you view the world? I think it goes back to some of what we talked about, about, you know, just, I think I'm constantly looking at how power is refracted through institutions. I mean, again, that's a pretty nerdy way of viewing the world, I guess, but, but, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm constantly thinking about that and thinking about, you know, whose story is, is being told and, and whose, whose isn't being told. And I know that you teach as well. How would you describe yourself as a journalism teacher? What am I learning if I'm taking one of your classes? <laughs> so I've taught ethics at UC Berkeley's journalism school. And then more recently, I've been teaching actually an engineering school at Berkeley, sort of teaching science writing to, to STEM majors. So having them interview researchers, take these complex subjects, turn them into something interesting and accessible. But I really try to, you know, just be as open and supportive and, and up for taking the students wherever they want to go. I think that, especially in journalism, like students coming up now are talking about entirely different things than I was talking about in J school, you know, six or seven years ago. And so I, I try and let the students lead. If you could do it over again, rather than go to the Coast Guard Academy, would you have gone to Northwestern or Berkeley or, or somewhere else? No, absolutely not. I, I think the Coast Guard Academy and the Coast Guard totally shaped who I was and like really prepared me for for anything and, and journalism among that. And yeah, essentially for, for this. All right. So pick an area in which you feel you have somewhat of an expertise looking for advice here. Can you give advice to an aspiring journalist in an area of your expertise? I think the first thing that comes to mind, it's actually something I got from a, a journalism mentor of mine, so I can't fully claim credit, but it's some of the best advice I got from Tom Peel, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist out here in the Bay Area. But he always says, turn every page. And in the work I'm doing now, which is like a lot of government reports, things like that, you know, I, I find myself repeating that because by page 35 or 135, I'm starting to get pretty fuzzy headed, but um, I'm constantly finding examples that if you dive deep into documents and reports that you're going to find interesting things and you're only going to do that if you look closely at them. Do you, with all this that, that you've brought up, do you think that you're going to be a military reporter for the rest of your life? I really enjoy it. And I think like, you know, like I said, this is a, from an accountability investigative angle, like this is very rich territory, whether it's the military or not, I'm not sure, but I, I think, I think like other government agencies, Department of Homeland Security as a Coast Guard veteran is interesting to me, but I certainly would like to be reporting, doing accountability reporting on, on the government, probably for, for most of my career. Great. So the show is called The Journalism Salute because we're saluting you for your good work. And I actually called the show that because it's a tie into my experience broadcasting sports at the Coast Guard Academy. <laughs> but with us now having saluted you, is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? I'd have to say Berkeley Side, which is my local news site out here. It, I feel like it's the pinnacle of what local journalism should be. Sonner Kurt, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck in your journalistic pursuits. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.